This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. I'm uh, Deborah Rohde, the director of the Center on Ethics, and I'm pleased to welcome you to the last in our uh, Arrow series on ethics and leadership of this year. We're so fortunate to have with us um, today Dennis Thompson, a professor of public policy in the Alfred North Whitehead Professor of Political Philosophy in the Government Department at Harvard, and the founder of Harvard, Uni Harvard University's um, ethics program, now the Edmund J. Safra Foundation Center for Ethics. Uh, his books include a number that are most relevant to his topic today, Just Elections, Restoring Responsibility, Ethics in Government, Business, and Healthcare, Political Ethics in Public Office, and Ethics in Congress, From Individual to Institutional Corruption. He's also the author, um, joint author with Amy Gutman of Why Deliberative Democracy and Democracy and Disagreement. Uh, Dennis Thompson has also had a distinguished career in public service. He served as a consultant to the Joint Ethics Committee of the South African Parliament, the American Medical Association, the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Ethics, the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, and the Department of Health and hum uh, Human Services. Uh, he holds a Ph.D. in political science from Harvard and took first-class honors in philosophy, politics, and economics at Balliol College. And if that weren't enough, I should just note that he has been a kind of godfather to the movement of uh, the creation of ethics centers in universities, not only um, launching the, the nation's, um, uh, one of the nation's first and, and most preeminent ones at Harvard, but being a formal and informal advisor to many others, including the Center on Ethics here. And we're so delighted that he's joined us both for this lecture and for the celebration of the Ethics Center's fifth anniversary, to which you're all invited from 4.30 to 6 at the Humanities Center. And um, there's no better person than the, um, uh, the founding father of this movement to talk with us on this special day. So thank you, Dennis, for joining us. Thank you, Deborah, very much uh, for inviting me. And uh, congratulations on uh, your fifth birthday. This, you, you as director personally have, uh, have done an enormously impressive job here in getting this center established and uh, running uh, so well. Uh, and from, oh, I don't know if I, Godfather isn't exactly the that, that's a, but maybe uh, it, it is actually a compliment in a way. Uh, the, and I've watched from a distance uh, the achievements here and, have, and with uh, other people who fo follow this movement of ethics, uh, been very impressed. So I'm looking forward uh, to the rest of the day's celebration. But before that, we're supposed to talk about, it says uh, on the posters, campaign ethics. And uh, you might think campaign ethics is an oxymoron, uh, sort of like Scottish cuisine or military music. What role could ethics possibly play in um, campaigns? political campaigns as we know them. 
But I think if you look closely um, at the last at several campaigns, you'll find a lot of ethics, actually. Uh, perhaps not in the conduct of the, the candidates, but in the criticisms that uh, everybody, pundits and politicians, make of the candidates. And if these criticisms are to have any point at all, if, if they're not just sort of nonsense, uh, the candidates and their critics had to be assuming, though not necessarily stating, some kind of ethical principles. The principles, or the, the principle behind the most common, common criticisms of campaigns is a particular idea of fairness, more specifically fair competition. An ethical campaign is one in which the rules are applied equally to all, and, and the press and the regulators treat all candidates and their parties even-handedly. Well, with a little help from Google, I collected dozens and dozens of criticisms of campaigns for the last dozen years. By far the largest number of criticisms tend to complain that one candidate was unfair to the other or that the press or some party leader was unfair to the candidates. Um, by the way, I'm going to be drawing most of my examples, and including some videos a little bit later, from earlier campaigns. I know uh, on your mind is the endless campaign that's still going on, but to try to take a little altitude and keep a little perspective and to keep this lecture from lasting as long as the campaign as its subject, I'm going to avoid in these remarks saying very much about this uh, primary. Also because primaries are different creatures from general elections and one of my aims is to prepare us for the general election which is coming up uh, rather than to muddle the primary that we're muddling through. But don't let that, I, I suspect it won't let that stop you from raising questions in the question period about what we've been through and are continuing to go through. Now, okay, back to fairness. Here's a, a particularly uh, telling example from the last presidential campaign. You'll remember uh, the Republicans complained that John Kerry had an unfair advantage in the debates because he's an experienced debater and is more articulate. Uh, a lot of good that did him. The Democrats complained that the Republican complaint was itself an unfair campaign tactic because it put Kerry at a disadvantage by lowering the expectations for Bush and making it impossible that Kerry could be seen as a winner of the debate. Well, the the media and the pollsters also reinforce the idea that fair competition is the right standard to judge campaigns. The media, they do that by covering campaigns more or less as a sporting event, the horse race coverage that you hear about. <coughs> and the pollsters <coughs> do it by asking, as Gallup does every year in one of their main evaluative questions, which campaign ads do you think have been most unfair or more unfair? All right, what's wrong with fair competition? Uh, grateful as we should be for that there's any ethical criticism or standards applied in campaigns, I don't think we should accept fair competition as the foundation principle 
for political ethics, campaign ethics. I'm not against fair competition. And indeed, it may indirectly serve ethical purposes. But as a foundational principle for campaign ethics, anyhow, it points us in the wrong direction. It focuses on what's fair to the candidates in this competitive environment rather than what is, say, fair to voters. I, I won't dwell on this, but just give you a couple of uh, results of this that I think. Consider the media, fair competition as a standard. Well, that, that encourages journalists to think they've done their job if they treat each candidate even-handedly. There is, I think, a media bias, a bias in the media, but it's not really a bias in favor of one side or the other, but a bias toward this artificial balance. No matter if one side is acting ethically, the media typically presents both sides equally unless, except for Fox News, where they do claim to be fair and balanced, but uh, that's a different problem. Another problem with fair competition as a standard is that it distracts us from the systematic vices that may not disadvantage any candidate or party more than the other, but do harm voters. So political parties may, uh, may be able to raise equal amounts of money in that sense, competition is fair, but the way they raise the money uh, makes their representatives, the congressmen and others, who are uh, more dependent on special interests. So the fundraising practices may not disadvantage either side in the race, but they may very well disadvantage voters by making money more important in the process than citizens would prefer, or more important than is good for democracy. Uh, I won't say anything more <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> about campaign finance. I've written about it, um, and so have other people. I want to kind of today explore uh, some of the more neglected, dark, darker, er dark areas of campaign ethics. Uh, so if not fair competition, then what should be the foundational principle? for campaign ethics. I, I want to suggest that it should be simply a principle of free choice. That should be a de core democratic value uh, in assessing campaigns, because what voters are doing are, is choosing leaders who will exercise power over them, who will be making decisions to which they, we, will be bound. A necessary condition of Justifying coercive power is that the people over whom it is exercised have the opportunity freely to choose the people who will exercise it. That's, I could say more about that and make that's somewhat abstract, but let's apply it to the campaign. And apply to campaigns, it means, says that the process should give voters what they need to make decisions about candidates, to make choices that could be said to be relatively free. The principle says we should not be concerned then about what candidates need uh, as such, not directly about whether they're being fair to one another or the game is being played fairly, but whether the game is giving voters what they need. Now, obviously voters need uh, accurate information about candidates, policies, and their records, but what 
we have to pause and see what can we reasonably expect campaigns to provide in that way? Just what kind of educational function should campaigns perform? I want to suggest that it's less than what many people, including theorists like me, might be expected to um, favor, seem to assume. <coughs> we have to ask, first of all, whether campaigns have any effect at all. Uh, I don't see many of my political science colleagues here today, but uh, they, the general view in political science is quite skeptical about campaign effects. Political scientists no longer insist, as they did for many years, uh, that campaigns have only minimal effects. But most studies continue to find that presidential campaigns simply reinforce attitudes that uh, voters had before the campaign started. Most voters vote on the basis of what typically called fundamentals. That includes performance of the economy, partisan identification, and ideological compatibility. Most voters don't change their mind about fundamentals during a presidential campaign. And by election day, everyone votes as most everyone votes as political scientists predicted they would. Doesn't mean that political scientists always predict how the election comes out, but looking just generally at voters change, what, what they believe on Labor Day is not so different from what they believe on, even with ups and downs on election day. Now primaries, that's why I said, are, are less predictable, um, but not because citizens are changing their minds about the fundamentals. Primary voters mostly agree on fundamentals. And part of what they're just trying to decide is who, who's the most electable in November. And under those conditions, serious discussion about issues is even less likely than in the general election campaign. So you see personalities, private lives, and gaps are more likely one would predict, uh, to dominate there. Well, if something like the, the standard political science account is right, presidential campaigns at least don't change minds in any basic way. They, they do matter. Uh, they, may, they help voters learn which candidate and which party best match their pre-existing beliefs and attitudes about fundamental issues. But the campaigns won't change those uh, attitudes. So if that's true, it follows that there's very little room for uh, deliberation and robust discussion that a strong idea of free choice would imply. So that the idea of an open-minded citizen listening to both sides in the campaign, considering the issues, coming to a well-informed decision. That doesn't fit the picture that political scientists paint of campaigns. It doesn't even fit the undecided independent voter. It might fit you. I mean, anybody who would come to a lecture on campaign ethics on a beautiful day like this probably is uh, not typical of uh, American voters. Uh, but it doesn't fit uh, 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 the easily accommodate a 
a strong, full-bodied principle of free choice. But so what kind of principle of free choice might it accommodate? Again, there are some political science studies that point us in the direction of a right answer. These studies show, um, or the studies that show that campaigns can affect outcomes in competitive races if the candidates, or one of the candidates, don't, doesn't focus on fundamentals. Actually, the economy, partisan identification, and so on. Even partisan voters can change their minds and cross over if the candidates or the campaign gets distracted from fundamentals. That's what happened, some people. One of the best studies of the 2000 campaign suggests Gore lost in part because he didn't talk enough about the economy, which his strong suit at the time. The Republicans were able to turn voters' attention to issues that were less relevant but more favorable uh, to their cause. Or maybe he, he actually did win the election, so that, that's another matter. Um, I suggest, therefore, take, more could be said about what these exceptions are to the general rule uh, that campaigns don't change fundamental views. But the exceptions don't help very much for the view of open-minded uh, picture, the picture of a citizen as an open-minded uh, deliberator, uh, because they, it's, they suggest that the m campaigns are more effective, more likely to change things if the campaigns manage to distract voters either from fundamentals or to wedge issues. And that's not the kind of um, influence I think ideally we would like to see uh, democracies encourage. So let me suggest that a principle of campaign ethics should have this aim. Campaigns should enable voters to decide on the basis of fundamentals, more generally, to decide on the basis of considerations that are more rather than less relevant to the choice of candidates. In other words, campaigns shouldn't be allowed to be distracted by, contaminated, let's say, by extraneous factors that have little relevance to the decision that voters make, or by factors that may be relevant. Reverend Wright may be relevant, but tend to drive out and dominate other factors that are more relevant. So I get frustrated when people say, well, it's a legitimate question to raise about X or Y. Well, yes, yes, but let's keep some sense about what's more or less important, more or less legitimate or relevant. So in, in this respect, I'm suggesting that the aim of campaign ethics should be really more negative than positive. It should set standards to protect the democratic process from distorting influences rather than trying to enrich it with um, edifying lessons in civic, uh, civics. So, uh, campaigns are not great deliberative moments in political life. They're not occasions for open-minded citizens to watch and participate in a grand national debate to find out what they think. What they are, and I'm suggesting should be, are a time to make sure that views, political views, formed earlier, more gradually, more thoughtfully, 
are correctly applied in making decisions about candidates and parties. Now, as some of you know, uh, I'm an advocate of conception of a democracy called deliberative democracy, which that conception encourages citizens to reason together about the public good, to learn from one another and their representatives through political discussion. It's sometimes thought to be rather high-minded. Um, whatever it is, you might think that a deliberative Democrat would resist the conclusion that campaigns can't be edifying. And some do. Uh, de some deliberative Democrats do resist that. But my own view, not, I don't necessarily attribute this to other deliberative Democrats, is that campaigns are not a promising, one of the least promising sites for deliberation in a democracy. And even a normative theory, an ideal theory, has to pay some attention to what's feasible, as Kant says, ought implies can. But there's a normative reason, a principled reason, to accept the limited role of campaigns in promoting deliberation. Campaigns, by their very nature, are strategic interactions, not deliberative exchanges. They do not function well. They don't serve their purpose if opponents are cooperating rather than competing. They're not intended to produce win-win solutions. To, to see why campaigns shouldn't demand this thoroughgoing deliberation about the common good, here's an example that I, I, I found in a race in Colorado a few years ago. Uh, a candidate who was too public-spirited, too deliberative. It was, a, it was a race for a seat in the Colorado State Senate, a hotly fought contest between Democrat Laurie Bauer and a Republican, David Wattenberg, four days before the election, Bauer, the Democrat, withdrew. She announced that after much deliberation, she had concluded that Wattenberg was, quote, in a better position to help the people of this district, so I'm putting aside our partisan differences, and today I'm withdrawing from the race. Well, um, it didn't make her too popular with the Democratic Party in that state. Her decision is not what campaign ethics should require. Voters don't have a choice at all in a two-way race if one of the candidates withdraws. So in campaigns, voters use reasons to gain advantages, advantage over their opponents and to motivate their partisans not to find common ground or to change minds about fundamental issues. Their aim is not civic education. So under those conditions, if we try to encourage true deliberation, we're likely to give deliberation a bad name. Reason giving in circumstances like that tend to be almost entirely strategic, and they provide a bad model for the deliberation that should take place after and before campaigns. So deliberative Democrats, and, and here I'm trying to get all of you to join in that because I think this is not just a deliberative democratic view. Uh, we should protect deliberation and thoughtful discussion from campaigns, make campaigns, make democracy safe from campaigns or safe. 
the aim should be more protective than educative. Okay. That doesn't mean uh, we don't have a place for ethics, but it means we have to trim down our expectations and be more think about protective principles. So what kind of ethical standards should we use uh, to assess conduct of candidates and other participants, including the media? What standards would best protect free choice, citizens' free choice? I'm here just going to sketch some standards, not tell you what the, the methods should be for, in for enforcing them. That's another lecture. I have some ideas about that. But let's get the standards straight first. The standards should be protect directed, uh, as you, you would guess from what I've said, toward protecting voters from practices that distract them from focusing on fundamentals. Uh, we can assume they would or should want to focus on fundamentals if they were adequately informed and not unduly pressured. That is, their choice is less free to the extent that it's uninformed and pressured. If you've been reading your Aristotle recently, you'll see those two correspond to his two modes of undermining action, ignorance and compulsion. So. But let's, we've got enough going on here in this campaign. We don't need Aristotle. Putting this in terms of campaign ethics, we can say then that candidates and the media behave unethically when they interfere with the free choice of voters. And they can do this in two ways. This comes to the subtitle of my talk. These two ways also correspond to um, the conditions of ignorance and compulsion dressed up in modern guys, I'll, guys, I'll call them misinformation and manipulation. First, misinformation, distorting the content of the message. We should not expect candidates to provide all the information that might help their opponents, full disclosure of everything that might serve the public interest, it's not the standard we should hold candidates to. So if we can't expect that, uh, candidates will be public educators. We don't want them to be like Laurie Bauer. And we can still demand that they be honest advocates. We can insist that they do not misinform voters. OK, I mean, we could give examples of what that might mean. But it's not, that's not the idea of misinforming or in forming is not quite as simple as it may seem. Uh, it's not such a simple act. It takes lots of different forms, and we need to make some distinctions. And let me mention two and using some examples. One distinction we would want to make in applying this standard of misinformation is, that, is between communications intended to mislead one's opponent and those intended to mislead voters. Now, admittedly, you know, this thing, there's no sharp line here because if you mislead op opponents, you might mislead voters. But here, here's an example, a pair of examples. The first uh, being misleading op opponents and the second misleading voters. In the 2004 election, Republicans uh, repeatedly issued warnings that they would be aggressively filing challenges to deter voter fraud. 
that tough talk forced Democrats to mobilize thousands of lawyers, maybe some of you, uh, to conduct poll monitor monitoring in the final days of, uh, of the election. It turned out that the Republicans were bluffing. They had no intention of doing this on a big scale. They did it in Ohio and a few critical places, but not anywhere near is what they had said. Their main aim was to get Democrats to put a lot of resources into preparing to deal with the challengers, challenges, resources that could have gone uh, into mobilizing voters and other campaign activities, which is where the Republicans put most of their resources, in fact, and to great effect. Now, that seems to me to be within the realm of legitimate campaign tactics. The Democrats should have known better. And the voters were not directly harmed, unless you're a Democrat. I mean, if you're looking at the process, uh, you should be as critical of your party if you're a Democrat as you would be of the Republicans. And that's usually a sign that what went wrong here was um, something that uh, was not um, so, well, let me leave that aside. So that, that's not, it's not a perfect case, but it gives you an idea of something that, that harms the candidates or the parties more than it harms the voters in any direct sense. Second case, <coughs> Republican workers in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, in, in this same 2004 election, distributed hundreds of leaflets and mailboxes and shopping malls. Here's a read from one of them. Due to the immense voter turnout that is expected on Tuesday, November 2nd, the state of Pennsylvania has requested and extended the voting period. This is looked on very official fonts. And voters will be able to vote on both November 2nd and November 3rd. Registered Republicans should vote on November 2nd and registered Democrats on November 3rd. Um, and indeed, some registered Democrats showed up on November 3rd. I don't know why, but they did. Any voter foolish enough to believe this, maybe you'll say, deserves to be fooled. But this, in principle, a dirty trick like this seems worse, uh, even if in its effect may not have been, than a trick directed just directly against the opponents. So there's one, what's the target of the misinformation? Second distinction to notice about misleading <coughs> communications, they can be true and relevant, but still misleading if they omit critical facts. Now here, negative ads are a good example. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not suggesting that negative ads are all, always bad, that we, campaign ethics should come down hard on negative ads. There's evidence that negative uh, attack ads are actually more informative than uh, positive ads. By their nature, they have to be. They're more specific. They offer, usually offer more evidence, or what counts as evidence in the, this business. My favorite negative ad um, from the last campaign, not the current one, is the ad the, the Democrats used against Republican Bill Sally, who was running in Idaho's first congressional district. Sally had made a name for himself. You may have heard of him earlier. He promoted the view that abortion causes breast cancer. 
the, the ad, the interesting thing about the ad, they didn't mention that fact. Um, it, it, the ad consisted entirely of accurate quotations from his fellow Republicans. And I'll play this because until I saw it, I didn't, I didn't believe it. Um, Here's what Republicans are saying about Bill Sally. He was incompetent in the legislature. In the campaign, he proved himself dishonest and deceitful, and he'd be an embarrassment to Idaho. He's an obstinate opportunist, an absolute idiot. He doesn't have one ounce of empathy in his whole frickin' body, and you can put that in the paper. So if you're a Republican or independent, and you want to vote for Larry Grant, you're in good company. I'm Larry Grant, and I approve this message. Good. Um, I'm sure Larry Grant enjoyed approving that message more than uh, the usual. That tag, by the way, um, which has now become a kind of cliche, uh, was the product of <coughs> political scientist who's now in uh, the house, David Price, who was a Yale graduate. And um, he, I talked to him about this. He's, people are always criticizing him for saying, why, why are you making us do this all the time? It has no effect. There's evidence that it doesn't make the ads any better. And, and he said, no, but it's, it kind of gives a, raises the tone. So I don't know whether it does or not. But this is one case where I thought um, it, it, you could see a smile on the candidate who was saying, I approve this ad. Yeah. Now, so I, uh, that kind of negative ad seems to me to be, you know, not edifying particularly, but not only acceptable, but kind of appropriate. Some kind of negative ads seem to me um, not so good. And here is um, in the Georgia Senate race in 2002, Saxby uh, Chandless ran an ad implying that his opponent, Max Clelan, was soft on terrorism because he had voted against the Homeland uh, Security Act. And here's that ad. America faces terrorists and extremist dictators. Max Cleland runs television ads claiming he has the courage to lead. He says he supports President Bush at every opportunity, but that's not the truth. Since July, Max Cleland has voted against the president's vital homeland security efforts 11 times. Max Cleland says he has the courage to lead, but the record proves Max Cleland is just misleading. Look at this again. Um, it goes by very quickly. At the first, look, they're up in the upper left-hand corner of the picture. As America faces terrorists and extremist dictators, Max Cleland runs television ads claiming he has the courage to lead. He says he supports President Bush at every opportunity, but that's not the truth. Since July, Max Cleland has voted against the president's vital homeland security efforts 11 times. Max Cleland says he has the courage to lead, but the record proves Max Cleland is just misleading. Now, the ad is objectionable not because it was negative, certainly negative, but because it was misleading. Uh, 
They were accusing him of being misleading, but the ad is misleading. Like a number of other senators, Cleland had voted uh, against a homeland security bill. Though 11 times, you know, if, if you know, there, there are many in committee, there are amendments and so forth. That's how they got the 11 times. It wasn't like over 11 years or something. He had voted against uh, simply because it didn't guarantee labor rights for federal workers in the, in the new department. And he could hardly be said, Cleland could hardly be said to be weak on national security issues. He was a Vietnam veteran who lost both legs and an arm in the war. You noticed another thing? You always saw headshots and see him in the wheelchair. And he had consistently supported uh, defense bills. The ad was also manipulative. I'll come to manipulation in a minute because of this sort of subliminal was it, you know, Osama bin Laden, dead or alive, uh, looks, looks pretty much still alive up there in the corner, quickly going by. Um, now, my objection, or I think our objection, should not be uh, to the showing of the ad itself. We're not going to censor ads. But to the fact that it wasn't effectively countered. It came in very late. Um, Clayland was not able to respond with an ad of his own. And the timing of, on a critical issue, uh, the timing and the nature of the ad, uh, the content of the campaign was distorted and the outcome was affected, critically affected, uh, crucially affected by uh, an ad, by a consideration that shouldn't have had so much effect. So our goal, I think, should not be to discourage negative ads, but to make sure there are adequate opportunities to respond to them. And that, I think, would be the best way to supply the missing facts that could correct misleading claims. Well, a lot more could, could be said about that. It's not just ads, it's speeches and debates and various other things. But misinformation, um, protecting voters from misinformation is the first and very important principle that we want to insist on in a campaign ethics that uh, is protective in this way. The second uh, is this principle is designed to avoid manipulation, to distorting the mode of the message. First was about content, this is about the mode of the message. And the second way, um, manipulation, involves politicians' attempts to influence your beliefs and actions, A, to serve his own ends without regard to yours, and B, by means, of, by means that circumvent your rational faculties. So manipulation is closely related to deception, including some types of the misinforming that I just talked about. But not all manipulation is deceptive. And even when it is deceptive, the manipulation adds a further wrong, uh, distinct wrong, to the act that we're talking about. Deception is uh, typically a defensive protective strategy it's intended to deflect others from interfering with your plans. 
Manipulation is more aggressive. It's intended to induce other people to do your bidding. It involves using another person directly only as a means. And it usually involves emotional appeals, sometimes covert, not always. Um, now, it's unrealistic and undesirable, obviously, to say that communications should never use emotional appeals and to make claims that cooler heads might reject. That would take the passion and the fun out of politics. But we need to distinguish some kinds of emotional appeals uh, go too far. Uh, let me suggest this as a test. Manipulation is wrong when it exploits emotional reactions that either, A, are not morally respectable, or B, not psychologically controllable. Now, if the message is false or misleading, that makes the manipulation worse. But even if the message is true, voters are still being used in ways they cannot fully control and for ends they may not rationally agree with. They're being used as means only. Okay, there are plenty of manipulative ads and speeches in uh, recent elections, uh, but <laughs> phone ringing at 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, you answer your phone in a pantsuit at 3 a.m. in the morning, but maybe somebody does. I want to step back from the recent campaign and use an ad that ran um, long before, I was going to say most of you were born, but um, that's, that's addressed to students. I think maybe some of you were, saw the ad as I did when you were uh, younger, but not uh, before you were born. This is the notorious daisy petal ad officially known as Peace, Little Girl. Did you know that? that, was, that's, that was, and it was shown, uh, the Democrats used it against Barry, Wall, Barry Goldwater in 1964, and it was shown only once uh, in the campaign. It's been shown millions of times since then in um, camp campaign strategists' meetings and on TV, on YouTube, and elsewhere. It's uh, become an icon in campaign advertising. And it's not been discredited as a, an approach. Just last year, the Republican National Committee ran an ad that also uh, ended with the image of an exploding nuclear fireball, as you'll, you may remember, or you're, I'll show you in a minute. But that time, it was to show what we would get if we voted for Democrats who are soft on terrorism. See how far things have come. Well, let's look at it again. Uh, for most of you. You will have seen this at one time or another, but let's watch it. It's short. It's an amazing ad.
mistakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live or to go into the dark. We must either love each other or we must die. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. And so he did. The uh, ad is, uh, uh, every time I watch it, I see something new. The, you notice that the little girl kind of loses track of the counting. You know, it's five, six, then repeats seven, and it doesn't quite finish. It gets to nine and doesn't finish. And then this voice, deep south accent. First, you maybe think it's Lyndon Johnson, but no, it sort of sounds like some Alabama governor or something saying, correcting as if this little girl can't count and starts counting down himself. And then the explosion. So you're, really, you're drawn in uh, to it more than just a sort of standard glossy ad. Um, it, it's a well-crafted. I mean, it, I'm sure campaign consultants show you and say, why can't we do this experiment? It's like people do, so, uh, psychologists do, show the Milgram experiments, and they say, I wish we could do those again. And these human subject review committees have stopped us, and now these political ethicists have stopped us from doing these ads. In, in 1964, Goldwater's position did seem more bellicose and did seem more likely to risk war than Johnson's. In that respect, the Daisy Petal ad was, you might say, more accurately captured a relevant, important difference between the two candidates. But the powerful emotional appeal of the ad was designed and did play on the most basic emotions of, of viewers. And it evoked, or was intended to evoke a response that went beyond any criticism of Goldwater that could be rationally justified. Goldwater certainly did not intend uh, to start a nuclear war and probably would not have followed a policy that would have resulted in a nuclear war. At least, it's, if that had been the only problem with the ad, though, I would not want to condemn it. That is, if it were slightly misleading in that respect. It was manipulative, but the emotion that it appealed to was morally admirable. I'm inclined to say that it was manipulative, but not improperly so. The more serious problem was that the ad was also misleading. Johnson knew at the time that he intended to escalate the war in Vietnam, or at least there's some controversy about this now among historians, but the standard view is that he had already, before the election, planned to escalate. So the difference between the candidates was not at all very great on that. And in this case, it's not the manipulation, but the deception. I'm backing and filling here to try to find a way not to condemn this wonderful ad, which I think is either the high point or the low point of campaign advertising. Um, it's certainly not the low point. Here is one of the low points. This, uh, this came back on the John Stewart show the other night, I guess. Um, the Willie Horton ad. Uh, I'll show it to you. And the, the, the uh, producer, the creator of this ad was proud of it. 
still is proud of it. Uh, I think the daisy petal ad producer has reason to be proud of, of it, even though I'm a little uneasy about ads, and he may have influenced generations of campaign consultants in a bad way. There's something, and I think nonpartisan, that you have to admire about the daisy petal ad. There's nothing, unless maybe you're Ed Rollins or something, but that you would admire about this ad, I think. See what you think. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. Well, Dukakis had problems, but that was not one. The ad not only uh, exaggerates the risks of the weekend release program, so misleading in that respect, but that's not so bad. I mean, ads, you expect to exaggerate. And there were problems with the weekend release program. Um, but the main problem here is that it in, exploited and intended to exploit racial prejudice. It fails my test then, morally respectable emotions. And so it is a form of manipulation that should be discouraged and condemned. Now, you might ask whether we would also object if the ad had portrayed a white convicted felon who had committed a crime while on release. Would I still object to that uh, on this test? Uh, I, well, I'll ask you that if you want to pursue the question of what kinds of emotional appeals should be criticized and what kinds should be um, accepted or even praised. I'm going to bring this to a close so that we'll have some time for discussion. I've been arguing that, um, or suggesting really, just, uh, that in developing any kind of campaign ethics, we should think less about how candidates can compete fairly and more about what voters need to make decisions, what they need to exercise free choice. What voters need is not education about the common good, but protection from misinformation and manipulation. I have no illusion that politicians will rush to adopt my suggestion. Um, but citizens, unless citizens pay more attention, that's us, to campaign um, ethics in some form that emphasizes the obligations that candidates have to, can to voters, Unless citizens do that, the integrity of our campaigns will continue to suffer. Sooner or later, we will be supporting candidates like this Louisiana politician I learned about writing my book on just elections. His name is Luther Divine Knox, or I should say his name was Luther Divine Knox. A few years ago, he ran uh, for governor of the state of Louisiana. And to win more votes, he actually went to the trouble to change his legal name. 
His new name? None of the above. It's a court case about this, actually. If the integrity of our campaigns continue to deteriorate, we're likely to see, perhaps some of us even welcome, many none of the aboves on our ballots. Thank you. So, yes, Deborah. You know, that was wonderful. I, I can't resist drawing you to the current campaign cycle and asking about how you see the race and gender uh, issues playing out and, and to what extent you see them as manipulative or not. Um, and maybe you could give some examples. And also, I guess, um, just to back a little, if you're right uh, that the campaign process is not a good occasion for deliberation about candidates um, and fundamental values. Might it be an occasion for deliberating about the role of, say, identity politics and race and gender and stereotypes? And it seems to me if you're going to extract any um, hopeful uh, uh, lessons from the you know endless death march that we've all been witnessing, it's at least the public is getting a lot more uh, sensitive to the way that unconscious and conscious biases play out both in the political process and public life more generally. Yeah, uh, good questions, uh, and I think that it's the beginning of a, a long. Um, not argument, but discussion that we should have. I think on race, which in some ways is clearer, um, there have been speeches, actions, and practices in this election um, that are manipulative and have raised racial issues where they, sh where, where I think it's not been healthy for the democratic process, and it. Um, you know, this, the Reverend Wright, uh, and this certainly Obama has tried, and I think despite the fact that people say he wouldn't be getting the votes that he's getting if he weren't African American, he, he really has not used race um, to his advantage and, and um, in the ways that he could have, and his opponent, some of his opponents have. And, uh, now, the response, some people will say, well, how could you, isn't race a relevant consideration, both positively and negatively? I mean, some of his supporters say, this is a historic moment, a chance to elect an African American. Isn't that a positive good? It shows how far our society has come. Can't we, isn't that a relevant consideration? Uh, yes, but it's not, this is where I said earlier, we talk about what's relevant and important. It's not as relevant as many other things in this campaign. Uh, so to ha let it dominate in subtle ways is both distorting the content and, if it's done in subtle ways, manipulatively. So I think race came to play in the last few months of the primary too much, too large a, a role. 
uh, both positive and negatively. Gender, um, I'd be more interested in what you have to say than what I would say about this because you're one of the leading uh, experts on the use and misuse of identity politics in that regard. Um, have we, but stepping back from this, have, is it a bright spot, uh, a bright lining in, in this that we've learned about more about identity politics? I thought so at the beginning. I thought, you know, in this primary, we are, I was proud of us. I mean, mature democracy, we can have a woman and an African-American running, and we're not going to just talk about gender and race, and, and we're not going to exploit it. We have come a long way. Um, these are great candidates, and they would be by any, any standard. Uh, certainly, just on the merits, better than what, what's in Washington, but even looking at Democratic candidates. Unfortunately, I, you know, I think we went from a high point to middling point, and I don't think that the overall outcome of the primary has strengthened or reinforced that. It's become a little bit um, gender, to some extent, and race, to a greater extent, have been used in ways that would violate some of my principles as we, we've gone on. That, in fact, is one of uh, the problems with the, the, the length of this primary, actually. Um, I'm, I'm not you know, one of these people who try to say, well, the candidates are learning more, it's good at participation. Yeah, there are some good things about a lo this long Democratic prim primary, but one of the bad things about it is that after a while, you can't talk about the issues anymore because there's no difference between the candidates except on the gas tax, um, the little bit on health care. So what do you talk about? Well, you, and, and, you talk, and you don't talk positively about race and gender in covert ways. I mean, if we're going to talk about race and gender, I would prefer it to be explicit, not who's the commander in chief, who's the, who's, what the black church is like, you know, let's, let's get our prejudices out in the open if we have to talk about it. So that's a long way of, yeah, sorry, back here. Oh, you're, oh, okay, yes, Dina, Dina has the, the ultimate power, the control of the microphone. You uh, have referenced relevant issues several times, that the candidate should speak to relevant issues. I'm curious to know how, how and who would define what's relevant. Well, um, fair question. The, I did say more or less relevant. And um, I think there, I don't see, you know, I'm not suggesting that there's some authority who decides what is more or less relevant, but uh, I think there's a kind of general conventional consensus on uh, that develops over a campaign that the Iraq war, the economy, that health care, you know, public opinion polls, show, I'm not somebody who says we should take our wisdom from public opinion polls, but in this case, 
those are the three, a few other things, uh, issues that voters are most concerned about. And I would say, as a student of politics, they should be. Less important, but not irrelevant, who are your friends? Uh, who is your husband? Uh, the, you know, I'm not going to say those, who is your preacher? What did you do with your preacher? What did you do in Arkansas? Um, those are perfectly legitimate questions to raise, but what's happened is our sense of relative relevance or balance has gotten or can get out of control. So uh, while you, you, you know, you're, you're asking a good well, a philosopher's question, which I should be asking, how do we decide what's relevant and what isn't? I'm trying to retreat by saying, look, you know, it's generally when you're talking about degrees, it's pretty clear some things are more relevant than others. We don't need a commission to decide that. We don't need philosophers to decide that. So that I'm appealing to the kind of ground, on the ground uh, standard for relative relevance. Well, would gay marriage be as relevant or more relevant uh, in the last election as other issues? Well, you're refining the. I mean, for some voters, it could be quite appropriately the most important issue. Uh, I would think even for those voters for whom it is, it may not, they may be prepared to agree that we don't think that everybody should necessarily think that it is the most important issue. And see, what I'm a little worried, gay marriage is a hard one, but it's sort of gun control. I mean, there are these wedge issues, which gay marriage really isn't one, um, but say gun control or stem cell research, which parties, the Democrats have used effectively in some congressional races, stem cell research to get Republicans to cross over, Republican scientists and people who care about curing disease. I think there are some Republicans who care about that. Uh, cross over, because they think that's the most important issue. And gun control, same way you can draw off, when people are clinging to their guns out of bitterness, you can draw them over to the Republican side. Those, I think this, that's bad, actually. I mean, the, those people on those wedge issues think those are the most relevant issues. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to have to try to persuade them that they're not, but I think from the perspective of the whole democratic process, we don't really want single issues to dominate the whole process as much. So while it's perfectly understandable, legitimate, I respect people who think gay marriage, stem cell research, if I'm in a generous mood, gun control are 
the most important issues to them. I would not, as a student of the democratic process, want single issue politics to be our dominant mode. And I don't think political ethics should allow it. Yes, please. Uh, this is somewhat on the topic of uh, adding on to the relevance question, but I'd like to move to uh, an issue that, that you've written about and that I think is really important, and that's the private lives of public officials. I mean, uh, not only those who are in office, but those who are candidates. And as someone who's very concerned about the quality uh, and the ability to recruit good people to run for office, particularly on the local level, it is increasingly difficult to, to get anyone to step up to the plate uh, when they have something in their life, maybe, that they don't want on the front page. So my question is, you know, uh, first of all, should there be a statute of limitations, if you will, on frivolous and silly and perhaps illegal behavior in one's uh, youth, uh, which would qualify one to run for office later on? Uh, and what would you consider to be the, the fair um, types of, of issues that would be uh, appropriate to bring up in, in a campaign? Because this, and I, I'm not even thinking of sort of the really obvious ones like the governor of New York or the uh, current mayor of Detroit, but there are many, there's a, a huge range, and I'm just really concerned about that, and I'd be very interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I, very good uh, question. It's a disturbing uh, trend, actually. It's a fair, it's, you know, it was, we've gone from the 1940s and 50s um, and earlier where the press didn't report and there was a sort of kind of quiet conspiracy not to talk about things that actually citizens shouldn't have known about. You know, there are senators drunk on the floor of the Senate various places. To a point where now everything, um, old, new, comes out. And I think that it's, it's generally a bad thing. Why is it a bad thing, though? Um, and this, it does tie into the, this goes, ties into the, the, my worry about fairness. You remember uh, when Kerry in the third debate, I think it was, and, and mentioned um, Dick Cheney's daughter being gay and sort of in passing. I respect that. I compliment, you know, it's sort of a little disingenuous on Kerry's part. Um, the criticism, and I actually looked, was Laura Bush, lots of people said, that's not fair. Uh, it was unfair to Cheney, it was bad, unfair to his daughter, and so forth. Um, well, I'm, I'm not so concerned about being fair to candidates. Now, you raise a legitimate question, trying to recruit people to come to, to serve in office. Um, Indirectly, if we're not fair to candidates, you won't be able to recruit people. But uh, the, the real objection to what Kerry did and the use of private life, in, in my view, is not what it did to Cheney or his daughter, because in fact, she was actually out actively involved in the campaign. This wasn't so private. She was a representative for uh, Coors Brewery and doing lots of political things. So she was part of the campaign, in effect. Um, 
What was wrong with it, in my view, was it raised the profile or the salience of a private life issue that was barely relevant, certainly less relevant than it should have been. And that's the trouble, especially anything to do with sex and certain kinds of shady dealings and money, although they usually weren't. Just take up, see what Elliot Spitzer, you know, it's all over the, even the, New, well, even the New York Times, the New York Times all over the place. Um, and as a result, the, the, and so the, the, his successor had to, uh, you know, we, we get stories when the, blind, the new governor of New York is blind and African-American. The next day, he also turns out to be a, uh, unfaithful to his wife. He felt he had to confess this. And everybody, it was sort of like, please don't tell us this. We don't want to know. Um, and so the coverage about the transition, everything got lost about what he might do um, and what the, uh, the, the, state the leader of the state legislature was doing. So it drove out, there's a Grisham's law, I've, I've written an equivalent of a political equivalent of the bad, less important, I don't even think some of this stuff is relevant at all, but granted that it has some relevance to judging the character of people. And I even question that. It doesn't have that much relevance that it should drive out. And it does, given our human nature. You know, I, I would read more about uh, the sex lives of, of Elliot Spitzer than about his detailed proposal for environmental regulation in upstate New York, which doesn't titillate anybody very much, but it's probably more important. So. Um, I think this is a disaster, and not only in the United States, but if you look now in France and some European countries, it's this Americanization of campaigns. One of the features of it is more private lives. And the candidates are encouraging it by bearing their souls. Sort of Gary Hart writ large. Follow me and you'll see what a wonderful person I am. Or confessions, you know. I'm, I have to tell you, I was unfaithful to my wife, or I've done this, or I smoked marijuana, or whatever it is. That's bad. It's not politics. Deborah. So to what extent does your idea that the fundamental value is free choice um, for the voters have implications for the form of campaigning? So for example, maybe there should be more debates and less ads. Maybe um, you know some kinds of technology are better, some kinds are worse. Maybe there are, you know, ought to be um, norms about uh, internet linkage. I, anyway, mm -hmm. so yeah, it. I mean, I I would. These ads, even when they meet your standards, um, they're not manipulative, and they're yeah. um, you know are really furthering kind of the. The, as you say, they're not furthering deliberation. They're, it's questionable whether they're really furthering some notion of free choice that isn't very minimalist. Yeah. Well, the, I think there, it's important for free choice uh, to try to protect us against some of the bad things. So it's a necessary condition. And, but it's not sufficient even for protection because, I mean, I'm. I'm not. I'm not. I'm saying that the campaigns shouldn't be particularly educative, but they at least should 
provide some basic information that voters need to connect candidates to their views. And yes, I mean, it does have implications to, uh, for campaign finance. Uh, I would, I think it's a good trend that more money is being raised through the internet from individual donors. I mean, it happens right now to be benefiting Barack Obama and it, as it did Howard Dean, but I, there's no reason if, if money is an indication of your support, why can't we democratize that a little bit? So I think the, that's, that's a good trend. It probably undermines the public financing system and the whole, which that was never going to go very far anyhow. So there's one implication that increases free choice in various ways. Debates, um, I would make debates compulsory. Um, and publicly controlled in the sense that we should not, it's a scandal that the ABC should decide who are the moderators of debates. And uh, now, there, there are always problems with government control and so forth, but uh, you could have a national commission on debates which would do the scheduling uh, in a fair way you know, maybe Jim Lair or somebody that we, you know, not, not so objectionable. Um, and now debate, the problem with debates, there's a lot to be said about that. My, my, I have a slightly curious, but political scientists have found that debates actually don't change minds, that you judge whether, you don't need political scientists to tell you this, whether somebody won or lost depends on whether you're in favor of that person or not. Uh, they don't uh, actually, inf the well-informed people or don't get much out of the debates and the less informed people do, but they don't get the right things. So I think the function of debates is to, to educate the candidates. If they have to debate, they actually learn what their positions are. Uh, I mean, you know, you think now with Hillary Clinton, and, and who's a policy wonk like her husband, and Barack Obama, who's just super smart, um, already are educated. In a certain sense, they are, but they've learned through debates how to deal with those and con convey in a simple way uh, to voters what they're up to, even if the voters are not learning anything from the debates, except it's a division of learning. The candidates are learning about the issues and how to talk sensibly about them to a mass audience in an argumentative situation where they can't quite spin as much as they're usually, they usually do alone. That's a good thing for them to learn. So it's educational for the candidates. For the voters, what do they learn? Well, they learn which of the candidates, how the candidates do under these kind of circumstances. How do they, do they do like Carrie and bring up in this disingenuous way Cheney's daughter? Or uh, do they handle an unfair series of questions from a moderator like Charlie Gibson or George Stephanopoulos about how do they, you know, well, Barack Obama didn't, some people think, didn't handle that so well. Um, I think he did pretty well, given the questions. But that, you know, it, was a, it was a relevant consideration. And we, what we learned is not about the issues. 
not about what the candidates think about the issues. We learn more about the candidates. And the candidates learned about the issues. So it's a learning exercise, but if you're a deliberative sort of person, it's the candidates who are deliberating and learning and maybe changing their minds a little bit in this process, developing ideas they didn't have before. Voters are not changing their minds very much, except about the candidates, not about the issues. Yeah. Oh, do we have to? Well, no. Do, do you want to ask one last quick one? We need to wrap up. <laughs> All right, I'll let you buttonhole them afterwards. Uh, uh, thank you so much for um, for really getting us to think at a deeper level about uh, the political process that's unfolding before us. Thank you. Thank you. All. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.